love and happy dog training and welcome to another episode of Dog Talk. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kassara Andre. Dr. Andre is a, a veterinarian who is specialized in using cannabis to help our dogs and cats and other animals be healthier, recover faster and have better lives. It is a wide-ranging conversation that goes over physiological benefits as well as emotional benefits. We branch out into talking about the future of psychedelics in animal treatments because there's a rage on the human side right now. The developments are really mind-blowing and animals will be close behind, so we're touching on that topic, as well as other related subjects around the veterinary industry, some of the more current treatments and compared to cannabis, and many more. As I said, a wide-ranging conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. And let's get to it. So today I'm talking with Dr. Kassara Andre, and I met Dr. Andre at a dog trainer conference in 2019, where she gave a presentation on veterinary cannabis. And at the time I was actually looking for help with two of my dogs, so I was very interested in that, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But um, let's get started and jump in. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Andre. Thank you so much. I am so thrilled to be one of your guests. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, you're very welcome. Looking forward to having you. So tell us about yourself. What should people know about you? How did you get into veterinary cannabis? You are a vet. So how did you make that transition? How does your interest sparked and how does it get all started? I, I am a veterinarian. You're right. I am a practicing veterinarian in Colorado. I always start with my military background, though, because I feel that across all of my career, that has just been so formative in things that I stayed away from, things that I went towards. So I say that that's really what landed me in the positions that I'm in now. Because when I was working for the military as a veterinarian, I was working with the working dogs, so scent detection dogs, patrol dogs, um, but they're, they're athletes. And that's it's a, it's a sport medicine of the veterinary world. And what I found was that I was really missing a piece of my practice. I you know, working dogs we know from birth or at least like two years, like pretty young through all of their working lives. And so we're not surprised by kidney disease. We're not surprised by renal disease. We know when cardiac disease is coming. And so really what we see that medicine be about is training health. So keeping that body in tip top shape, recovering from a really um, tough training or a tough exercise. And what I felt was that I didn't really have something to help the athlete. I had non-steroidals and steroids and I had surgery and I had sort of a really heavy one side. Um, but I was looking for something for the dog who just worked really hard that day and he was feeling great and um, in perfect health. He just needed help recovering. And so I, you know, even when I was out of the military and practicing on my own, I, I think that really started the direction of me looking for something else and has brought me to all my practice now, which is acupuncture, um, rehab, cannabis, massage, some of those modalities that really support what the body's trying to do on its own. And I bring in other modalities when I need to be a little bit more forceful and make a change that's not quite happening fast enough or at the right pace but I really love supporting an animal's body in what it's already trying to do and just be there on the right hand and the left hand, like, oh, let's just keep you in line or give you a little bit more support if you don't quite have the resources. So I always start with that story because I think the lack of what I felt like I had earlier in my career when I was actively working in the military, I've sought throughout the rest of my career to fill. And now I feel like I have a really solid handle on some of those 
in between softer modalities, if you'll let me use that word, of just things that we can do early on, really in that preventative, um, preventative realm. No, that's awesome. I mean, that's that, that's a great start. I think that touches on a really overlooked point for a pet owner. Because, um, so we, we train service dogs here as well, and service dogs have to be treated like athletes. I mean, they don't do the physical exercise, but the mental strain on them is quite enormous. And they need to be fed well, they need to be healthy, they need to be performing on a level, not like physically per se, but mentally, that the average pet doesn't have to do. And then in the, in the sport world, it's the same thing, like the, the dogs that Ivan Balabanov, that my, my mentor, um, is training and obviously Michael Allos here in Southern California as well and, and so many other sport trainers they care about their dogs as an athlete and yeah. as, as a performer and, and good food and health and all these natural approaches on top of whatever traditional care may be needed the acupuncture and um, massages is something I've done with my own dogs I've done um, water therapy I've done acupuncture I've done cold laser therapies and they make such a difference with um, yeah, minor things, so maintenance and preventing injuries from getting worse. It's, it's not used as much as one would hope. So this cannabis fits right in that same realm. It, it can prevent things and that's um, and the right comfort. That's awesome. Absolutely. And prevent things with just a little bit of a, a little tap. A little, can we just get you back online? And so you don't see the body have to deal with the consequences as much. So we end up in a really good physical health state, mental health state without a lot of the side effects or without, without a lot of the consequences down the road of other modalities that we have. Now, sometimes we have to bring in you know, the big guns, but if we start early enough, the body is so amazing. Biology is just so robust at actually doing what needs to be done. I think the problem that we often see in today's medicine is we tackle that problem too late. And so then we are into, we need the heavier hitters, we need the pharmaceuticals, we need the surgery. But if we can start really, really early, even from, as I hope we kind of get in today, that mental, emotional health care of our animals. So even as puppies and young adults, and um, I think we'll see that really translate to overall well-being throughout the rest of their life. So that's kind of my real big interest now is what is that intersection between physical health, mental and emotional health in an animal? You know, we hear all about that on the human side, but what does that mean for our animals, especially our service dogs, our therapy dogs, so any of our working animals? Yeah, no, 100%. And the knowledge that I've I heard you really, you know, the first a person I really heard a detailed presentation on cannabis on, specifically targeted to pets at the, at the conference. And I know you talked about the effect on controlling inflammation in the body particularly. And when I had a conversation with my own vet here later, and I mentioned, well, I'm treating this with cannabis and it's helping get inflammation. And he, inflammation? I've never heard that does anything for inflammation. I'm like, that's the number one application. Why? <laughs> I'm surprised you don't. I mean, anything else maybe you haven't heard, but that you haven't heard, that I found that was interesting. So, and he was a younger vet too. It's like, it's not that he was like out of veterinary school like 50 years ago. So it was, um, yeah, the knowledge is not like, I mean, people like you um, and other holistic veterinarians, I'm assuming who are working in this field and exploring it, have a lot to bring to the table that in the traditional vegetarian realm is not explored and can do so much prevention-wise that we that we often jump into later. Absolutely. I will, I, on the comment about sort of a, a veterinarian not knowing the piece of inflammation, I, I find that funny, but not from um, maybe the perspective that you're thinking about it. I actually, when I hear that, it reminds me of how many things cannabis does 
because of how it works in the body. By working on the body's own balancing system, um, it has so many different effects because it's essentially like, body, what do you need to do? Let me help you out there. But it means that from the practitioner side, it's really easy for us to get um, a little bit blinders on about the thing that we think is cool. Cannabis does this and then forget about all the other aspects, which is just hard in any holistic medicine practice because you just love, we're all nerds. <laughs> we all have the thing that we're so fascinated by. But for me, I'll say that cannabis practice brings me back to humility every single time of, I didn't think about that. Body, you definitely know better than I do. You're right. I am just here to be a helper and a guide. So you do your thing. And I think that's just something that I've loved learning in this this season of my career, really being humble in my medicine and kind of stepping out of the way as much as I possibly can. That, that's a good attribute. We should all be humble. I mean, when I, when I was, uh, I've been training dogs now totally for 19 years and professionally for 16 and when I was like five years in or so, I, I was one of those more cocky dog trainers. I could fix anything. <laughs> and uh, I, I've, I've been humbled by dogs over the years. I've become much more. I think it's an attribute of um, like having a lot of experience and becoming a professional along the way and really understanding, yeah, not everything's fixable. Not everything is doable. We're not gods. We're, not, we're, we're helping it along as best as we can. There will be limits. We're running into problems we can't address. We learn more. It's the, the measure of professionalism, I, in my view. So. I think that I think you're spot on. Yeah, I so. think you're spot on there. Good. Okay, so um, maybe just real quick, how I actually started working with you, but I think this kind of feeds into what everything we're going to talk about. So when I approached you after the conference and you put me in touch with one of your students, and I tried to find out what his name was, I couldn't find his emails. He was such a nice guy. He helped me so much. And he was from South America and he went back home. We did Zoom meetings and everything. Oh, uh, yeah, Dr. Gewehr. Yes. Uh, yeah, yes. so he's actually one of my students. Yes. Uh, he actually, um, I don't know that actually I remember that until you mentioned that just now. So Dr. Gewehr, if I can just brag on him for a moment, is currently doing his master's thesis in Brazil and has an amazing project underway that hopefully he'll be sharing with the world soon. But he's actually the medical director for my consultation team. So awesome. I am happy to put you back in touch. You would love to hear how your pups are doing. Yeah, he's was yeah, such an no. amazing super worker. Yeah, so, give, give, give me his email excellent. or something again. I'd love to reach out and just let him know how much he helped me. I mean, it was, it was really will. a big deal. Absolutely. Um, so and I shared this a little bit with your assistant, but obviously the podcast listeners don't know any of this. So I had two dogs at the time, and one was my, my really special dog, Sylvester, who I had for a very long time. He has passed away since, unfortunately, but um, he had developed a spinal issue. And I had dealt with spinal issues in dogs before, and I went down the entire route of, let's do an MRI, and this guy had intervertebral disc disease type two, and we raised funds. It was a rescue dog, we did a spinal surgery. Um, but he never came back. So I went through this entire journey with him and ultimately he was happy and he had a good life, but he never recovered and couldn't really walk again after the surgery. And he was seven years old when we did all this. So when Sylvester developed his spinal issues, they looked very much the same in so many aspects. And I knew whatever it ultimately would be, given that he was 14, 14 years old at the time, I would not do any, any spinal surgery at that age. It's just not something I would be doing. So my goal was to keep him comfortable as long as I could and prevent him like any kind of discomfort and pain if all possible and just keep him happy. And that was project number one. And project number two was Max. Uh, Max was at the time 17 years old and he had developed a perianal fistula. 
um, which actually was just for the first time showed itself while I was at the conference <laughs> getting, meeting you for the first time. Well, like my, my pet sitter at the time called me that he had a blood diarrhea thing and he seemed fine. Yeah, Otherwise, he cleaned it up and, and I was coming home the next day. I said, I'll take him to the vet. I'll, I'll, I'll sort it out. So it didn't seem like it's super urgent. It's just one of those things that looks horrible and then maybe can wait a day. And it could. So, and I've seen blood diarrhea before, I should say that. First time you see that, you kind of freak out and lose your mind. Like, oh my God, what's happening to my dog? But once you've seen it once or twice in your life and you, you know what to look for is the next, like, drop less blood or hardly any. They're like, okay, we're not, like, dealing with internal bleeding. We're not having, like, a right. tearing injury. So we can wait till tomorrow when I'm back. And so I took him in, made an appointment, and diagnosis came. And he was 17 years old, a German Shepherd. So what my vet told me at the time... And he was a very seasoned vet. I had used him forever, 15 years probably in my vet. And he said, you know, he's, 15, he's 17 years old. This is a really rough treatment. It takes about four months. There's only a 40% chance of this actually helping him. Um, given his age, I recommend you keep him comfortable as long as you can. And if you can't, come back and we'll, we'll help. But until then, I would not recommend this treatment for a 17 year old. It's too, too dramatic. So, okay, that's fair. Um, and so he became patient number two in our cannabis journey. So I worked with, um, with your student and he helped me understand how to ramp it up, how to start administering it, look, looking for signs it's too much. And just he helped me with the whole process and getting comfortable because I'd never done it before in, in really yeah. any way. And so we got him on these regimens and they ended up, they're both big, they were both big guys. So they ended up with um, what was like 12 drops um, CBD every day and 10 drops one-to-one -one on top of that every day. That ended up being their dosages. And both of them, this is with Sylvester, with a spinal injury. He was never uncomfortable. He was never in pain. He was always looking That's relaxed amazing. and happy. He couldn't move much, so I moved him around. He had this he had a really gigantic area with a gigantic dog bed in it. And <laughs> he was always smiling at me when I was there. And he just, no, he was a happy dog, despite him being very limited in his movement. So, it was never to the point where we had to do anything other than just like, let's just keep going. That's so great. And that, that was, and that is thanks to cannabis 100%. I don't know, I don't see how that would be any other reason because this is not a normal progression that I've seen with him. And he was, at one point, he passed away peacefully in his bed one, one early morning. Um, no pain, no discomfort. I kind of knew the night before, so I, um, I said goodbye to him in a way. I said, it's, Okay. I, mean, I don't know why I knew. I kind of felt like it seems like we're heading in that direction and just had a good amount of time with him. And it was just the most peaceful end of a dog's life I've ever seen. And I was very happy that it was like that for him. There was no vet visit. There was no trauma from all of these procedures that we undergo. Um, and thanks to cannabis, he had a beautiful, in quotes, ending. Um, all life ends, it's unfortunate, right? So it's not, um, but it's the best way to go. I mean, that's what I want for myself. I would wish it on any dog. Um, just fall asleep and bye. And that's thanks to cannabis. And that would not have been possible without it. So that was just uh, um, a game changer. Oh, I love hearing that. Thank you. Yeah, no. It's, and then, um, so with Max, also his perianal fistula, he, bred, he had, I think, he didn't have any more blood diarrhea. That was just one time when I, the day before I came home. Never happened again. Um, the swelling never got bigger. It didn't get smaller either. But he licked a little bit here and there, but he was not bothered by it a whole lot. It wasn't a big deal. 
no tears, no, it didn't get worse. It was just stagnant and um, stable and stayed there. And he lived another two years walking around, happy-go-lucky guy. Um, wow. Yeah, for two more years. And in the end, the last, the last day, he was like a day or so away. He did, it, it, you could see he was now, it, it was too much for him. So we did call a vet, but we had somebody come to our home. Um, there is a company called Lab of Love. I think they operate nationwide. And th that was also a wonderful experience. You call something like that wonderful, but it made, it made something bad so much better. And it was also very peaceful in our home. And, um, and cannabis also made that possible. So we, we, it has eliminated a lot of end of life trauma for my own dogs. Gave them additional length of life, more peace, more comfort, less, less pain. I mean, it's been a remarkable success journey from my perspective. And that is what also triggered me reaching out and wanting to talk to you more about this. Because I think that's um, more people should explore it and use it and try it and work with that and work with veterinarians who can help. And, um, Absolutely. And sharing stories like that are su such a big part of changing that paradigm. Because there is, there is definitely still a stigma around cannabis use. Uh, depending on where you are or just um, what you've heard about it or your own experiences. Some people have had themselves really bad experiences with cannabis. And so they are a little bit more hesitant to work with their dog. Just there's a lot often to work through when people think about cannabis. So I'm so excited to hear those stories. And it just warms my heart every time I hear one. And just that. And, and, and you know, thank, thank you for helping with this. I had no idea this was possible. And I mean, I didn't know it was when we started either. It just ended up being the experience. And I 100% credit the work of you and, and, and your student for making that possible for my dog. So that, that's, that's a big, that's a really big deal. I mean, everybody who loves their pet. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> our, our privilege and pleasure. I yeah. mean, that's what we, that's what we live for. Yeah. <laughs> and that's I, the call. And I have since uh, sent a lot of my clients on this journey. I've, uh, I've, I don't know how many times I've sent people to veterinary cannabis, but I have. Um, don't know if they mentioned my name. Don't come. Some people just go buy it because I, kind of run them a little bit through what I did. And they're like, oh, let me just try this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and absolutely. Um, the products that uh, your, your student helped me identify, high quality products you can buy in dispensaries. So it's easy to do, easy to access. And yeah. I have a and I, I love when trainers are working with cannabis. It just makes it so much easier when they need to come see me, when you need to have a little bit more molecular guidance, just to already be familiar with cannabis. Love it. I'm so glad that you're doing that. Yeah. Good. So um, back, to, back to the benefit to everybody, <laughs> as, as, as touching as my stories probably are. So um, cannabis treatment, so in general, so what are the overall benefits? I know you, you talked about this in your talk as well, but just for everybody else who wasn't there. So what, what are the overall benefits of using cannabis in, med in veterinary treatment for dogs, generally speaking? Let me answer that by a little bit of a statement about what the endocannabinoid system is, because if um, some of your audience members haven't heard about the system that the cannabis molecules are working on, then it kind of, it's not as fun. <laughs> it doesn't make as much sense. You can still kind of get what cannabis is doing, but you're missing some of that really good nerdy meat in the middle. <laughs> so you have to forgive me. Let me talk about the ECS no, for that's just a perfect. second. This is a system in every mammal. So everything that has a spinal cord, everything that has a, a, a vertebra, um, vertebrae, a spine, has an endocannabinoid system. So an ECS is the abbreviation for that. This system is essentially the mechanism of homeostasis. And we say that a lot. We want the body to be in homeostasis. We want the body to be in balance. 
But really until we understood what the endocannabinoid system was, we didn't know how that actually happened. We sort of just stopped there and was like, homeostasis is a good thing. But now that we know some of the mechanisms of what the endocannabinoid system does, we understand better how the body keeps itself in balance. And that that's the key to what cannabis is doing because the system, endocannabinoid system, its responsibility is to make all the other parts and pieces, the GI tract, the respiratory system, the cardiovascular system, its job is to make all of them talk together, play together nicely and support each other throughout the entire body as a whole. Now, there are lots of times where the system can get out of whack. We can see it congenitally. So an animal can be born without particular receptors, particular um, ligands or molecules they should have, or just something's missing and part of that function. It can also be can it all can also be required. And there's some really interesting papers on acquired endocannabinoid deficiency in humans. So while we don't have those papers yet in animals, it's pretty similar from a clinical perspective. In humans, a deficiency in the ECS is linked to seizure disorders, GI conditions, IBS, Crohn's disease. Um, some of those really, really tough to manage, tough to handle, tough to get any progress made on conditions. And in animals, even though we don't have that condition scientifically or, or via research identified, clinically, we see a lot of those same presentations. So think about the dog, just the animal, just something's not right. There's just a lot of inflammation. They're just not responding the way they should, or they have a lot of chronic fatigue, um, a lot of GI upset. Some of those really vague, odd signs that are really hard to deal with with Western medicine. Those to me are really, really perfect candidates to try some cannabis supplementation because probably the endocannabinoid system in that animal's body just isn't robust enough. It doesn't have enough tone to get the animal through whatever situation is happening. So when you look at what the endocannabinoid system is, and then we understand that cannabis-derived molecules, two of which are CBD and THC, that those molecules are actually working on the system, then it begins to make a lot more sense why cannabis can be effective for many, many, many conditions, because while it will work on the conditions themselves, really what we see the cannabis molecules doing is strengthening that tone, strengthening that homeostasis mechanism, strengthening that regulatory or balancing mechanisms. And so then the body is able to do kind of its thing on its own because we've supported from the outside. So that's what I usually start with when I'm talking about cannabis in general. The mechanisms of cannabis-derived molecules really occur because they're working on the system that we see. So if I had to list some of the things that cannabis is going to help correct first, the first things I always call on are sleep patterns, so social interactions between the family, uh, better eating habits, so GI um, regulation and balance, and some of those things, when you get them fixed, there's a lot of other things that just get better <laughs> as a result. If that animal is sleeping well, eating well, able to interact with the family, there's a lot of other things that will just fall in line afterwards. And sometimes we just have to do a little bit of manipulation of some of those underlying sleep and eating and, and basic functions to get, make a lot of success in the clinical cases. It's essentially the machine oil for the mammal's body. Makes yeah, everything absolutely. just go better. It's not just this one thing tweak. Now it's the overall thing just like runs in harmony. Um, yes, yes. And because of how interconnected it is, sometimes that can make it really hard from a research perspective to examine well, because there's lots of things at play. 
But from a clinical perspective, it's just a clinician's best friend because we're able to make progress on lots of different systems at the same time. And often that's what we need. In those complicated cases, we have to make everything better. We don't have time to work on one versus the other and let the others get out of whack. Yeah. So this is picked like one, maybe one part of the body. And I'm asking out the personal interest of a specific part that may be an odd one to pick. But uh, what, what is specifically are the benefits or what are the effects of cannabis, let's say, on the GI tract? Is it yes, repairing the mucus lining or what, what specifically does it accomplish there if that runs better? In the GI system, one of the really big benefits that cannabis brings is a generalized control of inflammation. Let's think for a second about, um, I love, so let's just talk about cats. If we can do cats for a moment instead of our dogs, uh, GI upsetting cats. So IBS in kitties is so hard to control because there's so much inflammation. Many times the only answer is steroids. When we use cannabis, we see control of inflammation in the GI tract itself. So the animal automatically feels a little bit better. We see impact on the nervous system, both central nervous system, but also the nervous system that is in their enteric, in their GI system. So by controlling the nervous system within the GI system better, we see decreased peristalsis so that the GI tract's kind of moving like it should, and it's actually progressing and moving food along and being able to digest. Then we also see some decrease in pain. That's a huge thing to think about when we have any type of GI distress in animals. If you feel bad after you eat, man, you're just not going to try that next bite. You're just going to kind of, like, oh, I don't know that I want to. It makes me sick to even think about it. So when we control that pain, we see the animal be more willing to engage with their food. We can get more things down than we can get other medications in. We can use treats to kind of get some of those other supplements in. So just having that pain controlled is so important. And then I'll also throw in the fact that cannabis is going to help decrease generalized anxiety. And when we have an animal who's really feeling that upset belly, man, life just is tough. Everything hurts. Nothing feels fun. And if we can get that anxiety under control, many times they're able to move, go for walks, play a little bit. And we know that that in and of itself, that movement, that walking around is good for regulating GI motility and all that GI health health as a whole. So again, here's my, my point of when we use cannabis, we're thinking about all the aspects of that GI disease versus just we have diarrhea. What are we going to do about it? And that's one of the reasons that I love this medicine as a modality is because it allows me to work on all these different parts and pieces, bringing them together and make that animal feel dramatically better from, you know, a one, <laughs> one modality. And it works on a lot of different areas. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in a person, you can measure the uh, hydrogen sulfide in the person's breast to determine if there's an inflammation in the intestinal tract, right? Yep. So, and really you can see it from level of bacteria um, in dogs. I think one of the most effective ways, what I like to see is a poop journal. Yeah. <laughs> and if you have any of your clients do that, but just what is, what does the poop look like every day? What are we seeing from that fecal mass? Is it too dry? Is it too watery? Is it well digested? So yeah, there are absolutely ways to just evaluate what's going on in that system. So I, I don't do that formally by writing it down, but looking at dog's poop is something I do every single day. And I thought that was this guy. That was that guy. Uh, I wonder what's going on here. So I, yeah. I, I monitor yes. poop very diligently. I don't do it on paper. Absolutely. I do it in my head, but it's... Uh, I'll pay attention to it. Um, one. A lot of my clients think I'm crazy when I say I want to see a poop picture from every day. <laughs> and, and they just have this, there's a stigma around, but people will think I'm weird if I'm taking a photo of my pet's poop. 
I don't care. I want to see it. <laughs> you, oh God, Show yeah. me your <laughs> You have no idea how much this resonates with me. When I, when I work with, so I transition a lot of uh, pets when they come away from the foods they come with because I see the stool's mm -hmm. not right and I make some suggestions. So I look up and nutritional books for dogs, what would probably be better proteins and just like pick some higher quality yeah, and like switch yeah, them over. Great. And then when we see the poop change, I'm always, I always want to take a picture and send it to them. I always stop myself. Like, ah, they probably don't want to see it. <laughs> no, do it. Do it. It's just I'm so, so important. tempted to send it, poop pictures. It is such an important indicator of health. Absolutely. Um, I support that. Yeah. Um, I just need to have it on my, on my contract consent to send poop pictures. They're like, what? <laughs> um, so I, I, I mean, <laughs> Yeah, the things that go on contracts, I just completely unrelated, just reminded me of something, a friend of mine. It's also uh, medical people, right? Yeah, like yeah, we're yeah. just weird and veterinary medical people are probably even weirder. Show me the, your dog's poop. I want to see it. It just, you know, yeah, yeah. I, wanna, I, see that <laughs> I, I know a company that put on their contract that you cannot slaughter chickens in bathtubs and you like, what? What, what are you bringing? Apparently okay. they had some students <laughs> from South Africa who had a ritualistic, uh, chicken ceremony in a bathtub and it became a problem. <laughs> All yeah. right. You yeah. <laughs> so it was added to the contract. You can't do that here. Okay. So, uh, um, so what are the, let's say the top five things that you successfully consistently see being addressed with cannabis treatments in dogs specifically? What would you think are the, the top ones? Pain. Absolutely. Pain is, I, I will say that it, it's probably the easiest one to make success in. Now it might not be the most success that you want, but you can, you can always make some type of positive change in a pain case. Um, I'm going to group inflammation with that, even though they're not necessarily, people don't necessarily think about them as the same, but pain and inflammation for sure. Top, top number one. Um, I love behavior cases. And so that's just my, what I love working in. So I'm going to put that as number two, just because that's what I see a lot of. Um, we, through our consulting service, work with a lot of oncology cases. Now that one, I always send through our oncologist to put together the molecular profile and sort of the dosing plan. So I definitely bring in some of that expertise, but from a molecular standpoint, cannabis molecules, terpenoid molecules, so all the cannabis drive um, molecules have so much to bring to the table in oncology cases. Cause really we're controlling inflammation, supporting the body's immune system, making the pet feel better, getting appetite back and we're really able to make some really big changes there so what was i on i think that was three um we have a lot of seizure i'll just widen that to neurology so it could be cognitive deficiency it could be a seizure um sometimes some of my behavior cases bleed into the neurology side and then i probably put um gi upset so appetite stimulation or uh constipation, diarrhea, like just a, a dysregulation of that GI tract probably is another really high, high number on there. Was that five? I lost track. That's <laughs> yeah, okay. We, we can do six. We can do four. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, those are my top ones. Okay. That was yeah, five. We're not, we're not that formal. Um, <laughs> so on the, um, on the oncology side, is, is it used primarily as supplemental to regular cancer treatments or sometimes in addition uh, in, uh, in, in instead of cancer treatments or that becomes a cancer treatment or what, what is the normal application on the oncology it, front? It, that's that's pretty wide. Uh, it depends on the pet parent's goals and it depends on the cancer type. Not not every cancer is, is responsive to cannabis. The body can be. So even if it's a tumor type that we might not make a lot of progress on from definitive care, 
that palliative care perspective of just helping that animal be okay, tolerate chemotherapy better, keep the appetite up, keep the immune system strong. We're always going to see success there. But there are some cancer types that respond really, really well to cannabis. And uh, Dr. Trina has our so honored to have her as our um, consultant on this. She is so spectacular in her formulations. And essentially what happens in those cases is she reviews the case, um, pulls in all of her knowledge from uh, oncology side as well as cannabis side and helps my team put together a molecular plan. So what are we looking for? What are the ratios we're looking for? CBD, CBDA, THC, some beta caryophyllin. Like there's so many molecules we can work with. We found that it is often the internal ratios. So how much CBD to THC, how much THC to CBDA, like those really do make a difference. And so when we're working on the oncology cases, um, we really, really love Dr. Hazab being in the mix because of her expertise in what that cancer is, the chemotherapy that's also being used, and it's always able to support the animal. So in answer to your question, it depends. It depends a lot on what the owner's going for and what else they're bringing to the table. But I always love cannabis in the mix for a cancer case because it's supporting that body as an underlying feature. So you just mentioned the, the ratio CBD to THC has a, has a huge impact on it working. I actually, that's, I didn't know that. So that, that's like super interesting to know. What, what, what are the main criteria to having like just high level, more CBD or more THC in the mix? What would be the, the distinguishing it, factors there? What receptors are um, present on the tumor cell type? So what we know, and now, now there is research on this, both from the human side and the beginning to be in the animal world what receptor types are on the tumor cells themselves are they responsive to cbd are they responsive to thc so there is actually enough mechanism knowledge that we can match the cannabinoid derived molecules to the actual disease type and then if we don't know we can make a pretty good guess based on similar cancer types cancer types in humans and again dr hazaz is an amazing oncologist so her ability to bring all that information to the table we rely on her so much but essentially it is looking at what the cell type is, what the receptor type is, and then looking at the cannabinoid drive, cannabis drive molecules, and essentially have a smorgasbord of so many. So you have a lot of different molecules to choose from, so you can be really patient specific. I didn't know it was like mapped out to this level of detail, like this cancer, that ratio. That's, that's very cool. I mean, that's very, that's a lot, yeah. that's a lot of yeah. research. So a lot of that, know. yeah, a lot of that comes from the human side of research and a lot of it comes from Dr. Hazaz's experience. You know, she's been doing this now. Um, we kind of started around the same time. Uh, so she has so much experience working with her cancer patients, but we are starting to see that research come behind and back it up. Very, very good. Um, so on the, you mentioned also seizures in your top five. So with seizures, I have a human side experience with someone, not personally, but uh, it, uh, Charlotte's Web seems to be one that is often used mm -hmm. for that. It worked very well on the person I'm thinking of right now. Is this the same? Is this always Charlotte's Web only for seizures or are there other strains? Is it different between people and animals for seizures? What What's the, what's to know there? There, there can be a lot of different reasons for seizures. And so just like the cancer answer, that's your answer there too. What are we really trying to work on? So let me just give you a, a thought example. Think about the animal that maybe they do have a primary seizure disorder, a, a true epilepsy, but we are really nervous, really anxious dog that really lives in a very stressful household. And guess what? When we go to the vet, when we go to the groomer, when someone comes over, that's when we have a seizure. So there's this, there's this band that I like working on particularly that we maybe have a true seizure condition, but really we're seeing the environment 
impact how that body is able to control the seizure disorder. So if we get that little dog so anxious and so uptight and they're just so stressed, we're going to push them over that seizure threshold much more easily. And so by taking out some of that stress factor, re releasing some of those muscles, just calming that body down, increasing parasympathetic tone, increasing that restfulness of the body. Many times we can control the seizure disorders simply by that piece of it. So if I think of through our patient list, you know, we have some patients that are, have their seizures controlled only with cannabis. Maybe they just had their first seizure and we're in that point where we're debating putting them on a pharmaceutical medication, or I want to just monitor and manage cannabis is amazing to start there because you're really helping that body keep itself in balance, decreasing anxiety, helping the brain repair if it has gone through a seizure. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't need, the animal doesn't need anti-seizure medication down the road, but especially when we're in that middle ground of Medicaid, not Medicaid, what is too often, what is not too often, that's an amazing time to start cannabis and then continue to watch. So those might be patients that are completely controlled on cannabis. You might see some that are just beginning to start like a thebina barbital or potassium bromide, but maybe their appetite's off or they're just not doing well on the medication. So using cannabis there to make sure they're balanced again, their sleep cycles are good, that can really be effective. So that would be more of an adjunct. Or you can also see those really severe seizure cases where nothing's making a difference. And we are on every pharmaceutical possible. And then we, when we add cannabis on top of that, it's just enough of that body balancing that we're able to back off some of the anti-seizure meds. Now I'll just say a plug because um, in case your audience hasn't heard some of this harm reduction education before, when we're working with seizures is this the big one. We have to be really careful how fast we pull off the other medications. And this is really tough for owners because their animals might start doing so well. They're sleeping better. They're less anxious. They're barking less. Like all the things that you didn't really notice were a problem suddenly are better. And then the owner notices it can be so easy to feel like, oh, we'll just take him off the anti-seizure meds. He's good. Yeah. But I've seen that go really poorly. If you pull those anti-seizure meds off, too soon and they are actually needed, you know, you can end up in a really bad spot because cannabis wasn't strong enough or we didn't have it at the right dose to control it. So I'll just emphasize cannabis medicine is a very soft medicine. It's one that works over longer periods of time. We definitely see responses within a couple of doses in the right cases, but most of the time this is give for two weeks, see how we're doing. Let's work for another month. Let's make changes really slowly. So it's definitely a patient medicine. And that's one thing that pet parents, when they're starting to work with cannabis, need to come into it with that idea of we are listening to the animal's body and we're going to adjust daily sometimes as we need to. It's not a one size fits all. And it's definitely not a recipe medicine. It is very, very, very much an individualized patient unique mm. medicine. Okay. Well, that sounds like the perfect time to transition into your newest endeavor, medicine <laughs> yes. of wonder. Um, yes, absolutely. Fun so, topic. Yeah. So as I understand it, um, so the veterinary cannabis side was more about the physiological effects and benefits of cannabis and medicine of wonder is uh, targeting the emotional uh, dysregulations there may be um, with a human, with a dog in particular. Is that a, yes. a, fair, a fair distinction? Yes, absolutely. So Medicine of Wonder is my newest program or my newest protocol actually that I'm developing. It is specifically a protocol for uh, treating emotional trauma in animals. So looking for novel solutions for some of this emotional disease, behavioral diseases that we see in our animals. And the reason I call it a problem solving service is because it doesn't have inherent in the protocol 
what the modality is. So the, the principles of medicine one, of wonder are that we first uh, remove or treat the fear posture. So I know you can see that in your head and I'm sure all of your listeners can see that in their brain too. That dog that's just kind of crunched into themselves. They're really always back on their feet. They just have that fear physical body. So making sure that the physical body is feeling good, that they're actually able to kind of go out into the world and be curious and that physically they can actually do that. So removing that fear posture. And now in that area, sometimes we use massage, sometimes we use cannabis. Um, I'll tell you about this in a moment, but psychedelics is coming to the scene. So what do we actually need to do to make that body feel well? And then once we have that beginning to change and beginning to improve, then we think about um, teaching, communication, and consent through some start-stop behaviors. And now I'm not a trainer, so this is where I just so value the trainers that are on my team and that we intersect with. How do we allow this family unit to communicate better? What is, how is the animal able to, but with its feet, you know, that's one of my favorite ones to use of just allowing them to participate in some of this process. And so they're not just having things thrown at them. They're not, they're always having to kind of be on guard. Instead, how can we shift that to them participating more in whatever the treatment is that we're trying to do? So heal the fear posture, establish communication through some start-stop behaviors. And then the most important one is to teach the emotion of curiosity. So that is the essence of the medicine of wonder is to it reintroduce an animal to the feeling of being curious about its environment. And I would just offer to everyone's mind, their, their thought picture maker, the animal who's come from a shelter or a tough environment, they're so used to having to react to things. There's just always something coming at them that they need to decide what to do, that changing that around and saying, well, what if you tried something? What happens if you go look at that? What happens if you go touch that? Um, maybe something good will happen. It's such a big change in their mind just to, oh, I could do something. Does that make sense? Like just that forward movement out into the world. Um, that's the essence of the medicine of wonder. And so from there, from that problem solving perspective, I might send them to my canvas program. I might send them to my massage program. We sort of work as this um, wheel, you know, a spoken hubs uh, idea where I'm kind of, giving people a, a next direction to go and depending on what we're trying to work on one of the other programs is a better fit or not yeah so um i know i sent you a couple of questions before we got started specifically on that because i um i understand somewhat what happens in the brain with fear is one of the number one things i deal with in dogs and um so the limbic system has these six or seven seven emotional centers whether right? it's the blue ribbon emotions of fear panic rage and seeking and then nurture play and mating on the positive side of things. So the amygdala would be the majorly involved in the fear part. So the, the fear posture would be, it's not the entirety of it, but a, ma a major portion of it is the amygdala. So is the, is the cannabis side affecting that portion or is the cannabis side affecting the seeking system portion which can pull the brain out of the fear, fear posture? Or is it affecting both in some way? Here's the cool part about cannabis and why it's such an effective medicine for some of these conditions that are just hard to make progress in because of that. Because the endocannabinoid system that we talked about first is throughout the body and it really is the organizer, the coordinator of all the other systems, it allows us to have an answer of both. 
So we're going to work on the nervous system as a whole and some of those circuits, some of those behaviors that are really deep seated and really fast. You know, the dog who just reacts like that and there's no time to do anything. What we see cannabis do is allow them to respond with a little bit more consideration. There's just a moment in time where their body, their nervous system is receptive to a new idea because of what we're doing at a physiologic level. We are allowing that body to communicate to itself at the synapse. And so we see an animal that's able to look at its world, react to its world, and maybe not be as, oh my gosh, I'm gonna die. But there's another option in there for them. So the answer is really across the board, that's why we see cannabis be so effective because we're working on all those systems at once. Okay. So it's, I mean, as you said, it affects everything. It's not just targeting specific things or one thing, obviously. Um, so let's take the, the seeking system in particular. That's the one that would create a curiosity more. That, that's motivation. Yes. That's um, yeah. you want to do stuff. So the activation of that, um, according to the effective neuroscience textbooks, is desire of something good, presence of something good, non-threatening novelty. So if I now basically take the edge off somewhat with use mm -hmm. of a cannabinoids, a ca cannabis in this context, is that then what allows the animal to potentially be more curious because they're not so on edge the whole time? Is that kind of getting at it? Absolutely. Yeah? Okay. So you're, you're essentially creating uh, a safe space in the body. So you're trying to take care of that pain, whatever's underlying there. Um, you're also changing what's happening at the synapse in between the nerves in that nervous system so that the animal can learn something new. And that's the idea about cannabis of um, rather than a pharmaceutical that's making something happen, cannabis is creating an opportunity for the body, the system to have a new idea. For there to be a moment of learning, for there for something new to be added. And in your experience, you'll know that sometimes that can be really hard, that there's just no opportunity for learning, that there's just yeah. there's no room. I'm not curious. I don't want to learn. I just, nope, that was bad last time. I don't want to play. Yeah. And so that piece, by by changing some of that tone in the body, what the animal's ready to pursue, then we're able to see some of that activation, interest, seeking, because they're not already responding to a fear signal that's rooted within them. Yeah. And this kind of begins to lean towards a, a question of why are the things we're doing now not as effective? You know, because I think both of you and I can think of the situation where, okay, that should work. In theory, that's right, but it's just not doing what it should. Yeah. And so my interest also is in the direction of psychedelic medicine, which medicine of wonder applies to as well. I might see a case where, man, nothing else is really working, or we have a really severe um, physical abuse or came from a really bad situation. While policies are not yet at the place where I can actually actively work a psychedelic medicine in animals. It's coming really, really close. And so I think that there is just like cannabis, another aspect of this emerging medicine yeah. that we need to pay attention to from the animal side, because there are some cases that we just don't have good options for. And what we're seeing for the human response to psychedelic medicine, I think really gives us some yeah. hope for some of our really, really tough behavioral conditions in animals. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we talked a bit before we started, but that, that, this is remarkable what's coming down the pipeline. And I recently listened to a, a podcast um, with um, Andrew Huberman, the neuroscientist from Stanford, and I think it was a Tim Ferriss podcast. And they talked about the, the article in Stanford Magazine, the March edition was a lead article, it was in uh, psilocybin. 
And he said on a podcast like three, two years ago, we would have not been able to have this conversation. I would have been fired from my position. It was a taboo topic. It's completely off limits. And now two years later, I could have not predicted how much progress we have made. And now it's the research um, frontier in, uh, in mental health, basically. And it's, it's remarkable when Absolutely. you any account with veterans and PTSD and anything you read. So, and then maybe, maybe this question cannot be answered at this point, but when I started thinking about this in the context of dogs, um, and I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is on the human side, if you even know yet, but I think there's a speculation that going on a trip is part of the, the healing effect. Um, I think the journey is out of that's true or not, but there's speculation that you actually need to get high <laughs> for this to actually work uh, because the pharmaceutical companies try to microdose and obviously prevent that um, and that may not work or not, who knows. But so let's say it needs the holistic thing, you need the whole experience, you need to get high for this to ultimately have the effect on depression and, and trauma in humans. How would we do that in a dog? Would a dog be able to even get high from that? And how would that go? I mean, that could, rather right to strap him down, this could potentially end quite dangerously if he um, go, yeah. goes on a terror trip well, and wants to tear everything up. You, you are asking all the right questions. Yeah. So what my team and I are doing right now is working through those, working through the protocols that we want to be able to use when this research is possible. And it's really close. So if um, your audience isn't familiar with this, I practice in Colorado and Colorado just decriminalized all naturally derived psychedelics. So that includes psilocybin, which is found in magic mushrooms is the colloquial term for that. And so we're actually in the same harm reduction space that we were for cannabis um, five years ago of talking to humans about, hey, you have the substance in your household now, be careful with your animals getting a hold of it. Like, let's just not do the accidental exposures. Yeah. But also we're talking a lot with humans, uh, people. <laughs> Notice how I'm always in my veterinary mode. The yeah. humans over there. <laughs> the, the humans. <laughs> Talk to the humans about that, that we are also talking to uh, people who have an animal in their household about the importance of recognizing how their emotional state affects the animal. So the reason I bring that up now is, is twofold. I do want to address directly what an animal might experience when on yeah. psychedelics, but mm -hmm. first I would just want to address the fact that as humans, we need to understand that when our emotional state changes, so here in Colorado, everyone's growing mushrooms at home and they're, you, they're you're doing ceremonies at home and taking this themselves, that affects the animal. So the animals absolutely know what's happening or just confused because our state's changing. Yeah. So that question about is the trip necessary, you know, that's on the human side, that's a human yeah. problem. But I think about what is the consequence of the animal if they're not prepared for this yeah. human to change? I think yeah. about our service dogs. No one yeah. told them that their human's physiology changed. Yeah. When I think about my um, veterans and all the service dogs that support them, yeah. no one told the dog yeah. that now the humans are better or worse. So there's just this piece of, um, what word do I want to use there? Fair. Yeah. <laughs> just We need to also be fair to the animal who's working really, oh, really yeah. hard to support this human. Yeah. Let's just be kind and make sure that they're involved in the process, worked with afterwards, um, etc. So I have, you know, I'd love to go into that more, but we'll, we yeah. can do that on a different topic. So Let me actually answer yeah. the question. Oh, were you going to ask a question there? No, no, I was going to, I was going to sorry to add something to that, especially on service talks. I work with people with PTSD. Um, anybody who's going into MDMA treatments at this point or anything with psilocybin, um, your service dog should 100% not be present when you take this treatment. You have him be someplace entirely different and bring him back after because that would probably be a real problem. He would, he would go nuts. And, he could actually wash really out and careful. break. 
when you come back together, you know, just take some time and recognize that you have probably changed, hopefully, right? That's why you're you're going to do the treatment or participate in the study. So you want to actually be respectful of this animal who is serving you of just giving them some time to integrate. You know, that word integration is a really big piece on the human use of psychedelics. What happens afterwards? How do you allow these new ideas to actually become part of your ideas and your your mental state and your physiology and your neurology well integration is also something that needs to happen for the animals in that person's life as well as when we eventually use psychedelics for animals themselves so i'll just add there a note of a problem that we're seeing quite a bit there are a lot of untrained animals being used as therapy animals so uh counselors or psychology um, human uh, practitioners using personal animals in these counseling sessions even in some of the uh, like a research trial we've seen a couple of pictures of those and just to emphasize to everyone who may not know animals who are working animals need a lot of training yes. they need appropriate adequate and continued training. It's not just a, I took a class or my dog took a class and now they're good. Just recognize how hard that animal is working every, every moment of the day. And it's not a thing that an untrained animal should be called on to do because what happens is then I see them in my clinic because the animal is now having separation anxiety or inappropriate urination because they've been essentially been exposed to these very emotional situations without the training of how to handle that and not being cared for afterwards with some decompression, making sure they're okay. So again, I'm sure your audience is thinking this in their brain already, but I just wanna emphasize that we are seeing that a lot in the psychedelic medicine realm of humans utilizing animal assistance in therapy, but not necessarily coming to it with the understanding of what that means, of the training that animal needs and how to care for a working animal. Um, we actually have a exhibit that we're doing at the Psychedelic Science 2023, this huge conference that's in Denver. Um, and we're talking specifically about- The, the psilocybin conference? Right? What was that? A psilocybin conference? Yeah, so it is oh. um, a psychedelic science. So it is covering all psychedelic medicine. Um, it's a through MAPS is one of the organizations that has sponsored a lot of the studies. So their uh, convention is in Denver this year. And we our nonprofit is really excited to be a community partner where we have a therapy dog tent and a service dog tent. And we're talking about work rest cycles for animals and training that's necessary. So this is something we're really passionate about. about I got to try to go to that. Advocating that's, for animals is... in the midst of this. I try to. I have to try to go to that. That sounds fascinating. Absolutely, June twenty first through twenty third, we will be there. June um, okay. But uh -huh. to go back to your original question, yeah. the concept of if an animal is given a psychedelic, so in a therapeutic context, right? We're not talking about accidental exposure, intoxication from getting to someone's stash. Now we're a little bit further in the future, talking about okay, what happens when we're actually able to administer this to an animal? What does that look like? Well, first, I'd like to suggest to everyone that the trip that a human takes is very likely very different than a trip of a dog. So the cognition between these two species is not the same. And we might have very, very similar circuitry, but to assume that the trip experience of a human is going to be exactly the same as a trip experience for the cognition of a dog, that's very, very, very anthropomorphic. That doesn't mean that we know what the animal's experience is, but I just always like to say that to everyone. Of it's it's very anthropomorphic for us to say that's going to be a hard trip for the dog. Like that could be very much our human oh, yeah. 
in that we, gives us. We have that. no idea what the trip's going to be for the dog, or if he's going to have a trip, right? So well, that's that. What is what is know. their cognition? You know, think yeah. about all the little mice that we're doing these studies on. What is cognition for them? What is consciousness for them? So that again, that doesn't mean that we're not carefully thinking about it, but we can't immediately make that. Oh, they're going to have the same trip that we are. However, what I really think about is consent. That's one of the biggest things that I think we need to talk about from an ethics perspective. Why are we using these medicines? What's the reason for them? And for me, I'm really focusing on canine PTSD. Some of those really intractable behavior cases is the one, are the ones that I want to tackle first. Animals that have been sexually abused, animals that have been in fight rings, animals that have been tortured. Some of those where in reality, the only answer right now is euthanasia. So if we're already going to make that decision for the animal and euthanasia is the only choice, why not try something else? So that's where I think we start. Well, we there are about... groups of people, I had to tell you this, but there are groups of people who think euthanasia is always better than trying something else, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, It's something, it's something uh... that we got to work through, right? <laughs> yeah. That ethics on the human side is big. That ethics on the animal side is big. But I think to be willing to tackle that is the hallmark of communities who really love our animals to not know the answer and be like well we got to tackle it anyway because we need something better you know we need a better solution than we, what we currently have yeah i 100 so, agree with you is, I don't know. <laughs> no i'm with you i'm with you i'm not one of those people i'm just saying that is literally groups so like euthanasia yeah, is better sure. than trying this like what, sure. oh, not not just cannabis but whatever but something they're uncomfortable with let's not try this let's just euthanize them yeah, it's i hear you i hear you well you you know you know who i'm talking about probably <laughs> as a vet you <laughs> Um, okay, so so on the so here, here's one thing I wanted to uh, jump jump well back to on the on the service dog side. I think this is probably something that um, most regular uh, regular that sounds sounds bad, but like the average pet owner who's not having a service okay. or has a pet, um, mm -hmm. I mean it's not bad in any way, is probably not familiar with. But a service dog generally alerts to the difference in a person, so the dog needs to know what is the normal of my human. And that normal is not the normal of any other person, but what is her normal heart rate or what is her normal uh, brain state or what is her normal whatever. Right? So it's yeah. that dog understands this is normal for him or her. Um, and when the, when the person deviates from that normal, the dog alerts in some capacity. And now when you go through the PTSD treatment, your normal changes and the dog will have to relearn what your normal is. And that is, that is what you're referring to. I think that's the... That's okay. something that people who have dogs, PTSD dogs, that probably help them a lot, do need to factor in. And it's not by no means you shouldn't do the treatment. You should. You just need to make a plan for training or retraining or adjusting your service dog afterwards so he can re-understand, oh, man, this, this person has changed now. So we'll, we'll do it a little Absolutely. differently. Um, yeah. So putting my service dog ahead on for a moment, service dog trainer ahead for a moment. <laughs> Well, these are, these are excellent points. A lot of great information that I actually hadn't really thought about to this degree. So this is super interesting to me. Um, the other one that I th I'll just point out because I think you'll like this topic. Uh, in When humans use psychedelics, there is a very frequent shift in time. So perception of time is one of the things that can change a lot if a human um, takes a psychedelic trip. And so one of the things we're emphasizing is, did you take your dog out? <laughs> they still have to pee they're still hungry so you know, it seems weird like that should kind of be you know par for the course but it's just some things that 
we're not really thinking about from the human side when we begin to experiment with some of these medicines and modalities. And I'm so excited for what that means for human um, mental health, because again, as a veterinarian, I'm also human and our industry is really suffering some from mental health stuff. So I'm yeah. excited about that. Yeah. But when I have my veterinarian hat on, that's what I think of first that if no matter what you choose to do in your household, make sure that your animal is able to leave the room, give them the option to opt out if they want to, that they've been fed, taken outside, that you're just thinking about their creature comforts because they are really depending on you um, and you need to have that responsibility no matter what you're choosing to do from a substance perspective. So a lot of the things that you mentioned about the, the, the really holistic and comprehensive approach with animals that have emotional distress um, resonates really well with me. It's, it's really, I do, a, I do play-based training. I'm a play-based trainer. And so, sounds like a lot of the things that you guys are doing is also along those lines because it really allows you to, to build confidence around novel situations. I've seen some remarkable things, but just like trying to, dog, to pull the dog out of the, the fear posture and shutting yes. down the instant fear reactions. I had, was last, was last year? It was last year. And they may be listening. I'm not going to mention their names, but I think they listen to my podcast. And their dog was a fear biter and had never played with a ball ever. And treats, yeah, I would go after treats if they're like easily accessible. But we built this up from, well, here's a treat. You don't have to come near me. You can run after it. It's over there, far away from me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a stranger. It went to the point where, well, I'll go in a box. The dog didn't want to stick his head in. Just an open big Amazon box or something like shipping mm -hmm, box container. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Stick your head in there and sooner or later that happened. And then after a couple of those, um, they came back for a session and said, well, we had this gigantic pile of Amazon boxes and the dog just jumped in and dived in and was, was super comfortable <laughs> now. So it got, it, it got stronger and stronger in their ability to cope with environmental um, novelties and stressors. Absolutely. And then in that session right after, I brought a ball back out and I stuck a treat in it. It was one of those uh, Starmark balls with a string on it. They're really great. You can stick treats in it or not. You can use them in any which way you like. And... Then we start, this dog started going after the ball because of the treat initially. But then two weeks later, ball, no treat. And the dog started playing tug with that Isn't ball. Isn't that amazing? And, oh, that makes me and so they, was, they were sitting there, they were starting to cry. They were so emotional. Their dog had never in, their li in this life with them ever done this. And yes. it was such a transformative, like seeing this life, it was so emotional. And it's such a beautiful thing when you can facilitate this process. And it's, yeah, so any, any which way cannabis can help this process along, speed it up, make it better, make it smoother. Absolutely. We need to explore Absolutely. it. So, you know, um, you may have found this already. I really love multi-animal households and multi-animal cannabis treatments, especially when you're trying to get some of those good social interactions, uh, household dosing. Is something I support a lot uh, to kind of work, find a dose for each animal, but then have a really intentional play session where all the animals that you want to interact are on cannabis so that you have that decreased anxiety, pain control, pro-social um, interactions, and allowing everyone to have a moment of learning and see some of that intra-animal play interaction become a little bit easier. So that's one of my favorites, especially in multi-cat households. If, oh, you're, you're a cat person, right? <laughs> Yes, I am a cat person. So, so, <laughs> no, I love my dogs, yeah. but definitely it's a cat. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a no. cat myself. So if, if you like a multi-pet households and you like dogs, you come by. We have a lot of them. Not, not like a couple. We have like 
it's it's a it's a no, it's a number. When you hear it, you don't think that makes sense. <laughs> um, well, I've been told I only have one cat at the moment, but I've been told that because I'm a veterinarian, I get a higher quota of animals before I'm the crazy cat lady. So you know, yeah. Yeah. I have as a vet, you have more. an excuse. Well, I, I, I need this for my work. This is this like, <laughs> <laughs> see, there you go. It's, that's it's, right. It's Same here. It's professional. Half of them are service dogs. Professional animals. It's, that's right. That's right. Doesn't that's count. Right. Stop judging everyone. <laughs> Doesn't cost anything with animal control either. Registration's free. <laughs> so, um, okay. So on the so let, let me ask from like a personal interest perspective as a dog trainer. So if any dog trainer, not like a, a, a person now who has a dog and wants to try cannabis, but if a dog trainer would like to incorporate cannabis in uh, the treatment of fearful animals in their training program, what would be the best approach to um, get in touch with you guys. Is there some kind of collaboration, or do you have do you have something going on that the dog trainers can get uh, into this program to help people that are not in Colorado? Is there anything like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll just say first of all, every trainer out there, please be comfortable with cannabis. It would be amazing if every animal who came to see me from a behavior perspective was already on a cannabis product, because then I can look at how they're responding to it and really make some immediate changes because it tells me a lot about their ECS. It tells me a lot about their family unit. So just as a plug for trainers out there, don't be scared about cannabis. There is such a beautiful modality to work with. And there are some ways that you can work with it where it's okay if you don't know some of the medical background. And if you're uncertain or you kind of need that extra help, um, you can, some of our technicians that are going through our course, those are great ones to reach out to. We call them veterinary cannabis counselors. So essentially have that medical knowledge, but also the veterinary medical knowledge and cannabis knowledge and kind of answer those questions. So one, you can definitely reach out to any of these veterinarians who know cannabis, uh, veterinary cannabis counselors, technicians who know cannabis. And we also have a veterinary cannabis guide certification, which is our non-medical side. So trainers who are interested in getting that certification. We would love to see you in class. It's so much fun to have a trainer in class. And if anyone's interested in working with cannabis, just to get started, I would say that most dogs that have a behavior condition, they need to be on something that is a CBD dominant product. That means that it has other molecules in there, but the heaviest one, the most, most um, concentrated one is CBD. So again, that's even, even that might feel a little bit uncomfortable for some of your trainers, but that's not too hard to get past. Kind of understanding that phrase, CBD dominant cannabis product. Once you know what that means, that's something that all trainers could be working with. And it's such a beautiful thing to add on just for that general health of the animal, much less if you're seeing a behavior issue. So it would be basically a CBD THC two to one or more. It's what we're meaning with CBD dominant yeah. or... You know, so CBD dominant means that there's just more CBD than anything else. And you can find any ratios. Most of the time you're going to find a 20 or like a 25 to one. So 25 CBD molecules to one molecule of THC. That's like the most common purchase it online, purchase it from a pet store, hemp-based product. And those are really, really great to use. Just make sure that you have a certificate of analysis. So you have, you know, what's actually in the product. Is there CBD in here? Is there THC in here? But really starting with that level, just getting some support to that endocannabinoid system, that's a really, really, really safe place to start. 
Is the information for, for dog trainers to um, become certified in something like that on the website of uh, veterinarycannabis.org? Yeah. Or... yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So veterinarycannabis.org, there's a certification page and um, we actually teach the classes together. So it's a joint student pool, which makes it so fun because everyone is contributing from their backgrounds, what their interest is. And we teach it in a three-month course. There are a couple modules that you work through, some classroom time that we spend. I'm actually the, the primary instructor, which I love doing. I love working with that class. Uh, it's just, just a really great time to deep dive into what you're interested in in cannabis and your state, because everyone's going to be a little bit different. We spend a lot of time thinking about what do you need to research to know what's working in your own state, just because policies are different everywhere. Is it, is it something you do over Zoom or is it only in person in Colorado? Yeah, it's virtual. We have students from all over the globe, um, New Zealand, South Africa. Awesome. Um, I think we have one from, well, definitely South America, Central America. We have a lot of students from, so it's definitely virtual. Um, most of my massage classes are in person, but for the veterinary cannabis side, all of those are virtual. Awesome. Yeah, so if you ever want to relocate, we need a canine massage therapist over here. So feel free to come to Southern California. We will welcome <laughs> you. We just have to wait until everything that you have in Colorado is also legalized here. I know we're a little bit behind That's in right. California That's again. Right. That's right. <laughs> get, get, California, get a grip with uh, MDMA. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, but can you you tend to change your policies really fast? So I expect kind I expect California to be very very close on the heels. Yeah, I'm always like uh, we have to. That Colorado does it. Okay, let's go. <laughs> 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 I, I I always been like Colorado legalized uh, recreational marijuana use before before California. I was always saying California. Shame on you. <laughs> how, how, how are we not yeah, the first here? Cannabis, this is Cannabis longer. Central. Everybody here is stoned. How is this not the first day? <laughs> yeah, and Oregon has us all beat. You know, they yeah, have to yeah, be yeah. first. Well, it's, it's 40 states now that have legalized medical use, I believe, and like 35 recreational use or something like that, right? Absolutely. I, I think I, I, I don't know that I've looked at that in a while, like since this last election cycle, but there might just be a few states that don't have any policy, like four maybe, um, but you can purchase hemp-based products everywhere, right? So it's what you can sell or grow that have the policies or obviously a dispensary, but uh, hemp-based products, CBD dominant products are available everywhere. It's actually weird in a way because it seems when you're a politician and you want to win an election, that's a surefire bet. 80, 90% of Americans want this legalized nationwide. Just run on that platform, you get elected. It seems easy. I don't, I don't know why nobody's jumping on this bandwagon. It seems like a really good See, method. See, you just need your other career as a, a, a political consultant and then we'd all be, be in a better position. <laughs> I, I don't think I want to get in on that racket. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't sound up your alley. I, I like my mental health. So, <laughs> Some human training. I don't think there's human enough training. CBD in this world to maintain my mental health if I enter this world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So, so in the, um, is there anything else you want to add about the uh, medicine of wonder or you got everything that you wanted to cover? Mm, let's see. I think I would just say that I'm, it's one of my favorite things to do. It's my favorite protocol that I've ever designed. You know, we're not quite in a space where we can really work with psychedelics yet we're putting the the final touches on some of the research for that but medicine of wonder allows me to be a problem solver and i love doing that working on the family unit level and 
being trauma aware, whether that's in the human and there's been some trauma there or in the animal and being able to approach my appointments with a lot of time. That's what I feel that my spot in my career, my time in my career has allowed me to bring to this particular protocol of when you just need to wait. And you, you know exactly what I mean from that trainer perspective, when you just need that moment of breath to let the animal think about what's going to happen next, when you're just not pushing for that one thing that you want to have happen as a human that you think needs to be there. Yeah. And in the medicine of wonder, it's just designed in a way that it's very flex form, um, is very patient centric, very family unit centric. And I love when we can just wait for a moment and let that animal process. And that space and time gives them so much ability to advocate for themselves. That's probably one of my favorite moments in the protocol at the moment is just to be patient. So the, the last long. sentence that you just said to give the animal time, that is generally fantastic dog training advice, regardless of emotional dysregulation or not. Yeah. Because that's like making behaviors happen quickly seems somehow to be something people strive to way too much. Very human. And it's, it's human, but it's not Very helpful. You got to give the dog time to, 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 to do it at their pace. And it's, yes. uh, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's uh, emotional or if it's just like something basic or it's a complex service task or a complex trick or something you need to be able to process it's like when you when you learn to play the piano and you can't get over this one passage that drives you crazy sometimes it's just you have to sleep on it for a night the next day you go oh it's no longer a problem my brain circuits have just now integrated absolutely and it's uh, i just i think this is this may be the podcast episode that comes out just before that this is about um how animals learn or not how animals learn but how learning works in dogs how teaching works in dogs and one of the points that I make in, in uh, two additional end, uh, end, uh, at the end of it is even though we don't necessarily see progress during a training session, doesn't mean there isn't learning taking place. It's always Absolutely. taking place. It's just not, not necessarily always visible, which is like the whole behaviorism problem to begin with. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm started listening to an audiobook just like yesterday. It's called Punished by Reward. And mm. it's A, highly entertaining, but B, just super interesting and uh this guy is, is funny but it's, it's an interesting take on behaviorism in general he basically <laughs> spends the first half hour in this audiobook just like shredding skin or <laughs> it's like, um it's and, and everything that's wrong with him so it's just uh, just it's interesting um, it's always those different perspectives and you know there's always something different to try but i find that that answer let's just try something different okay are you stuck it's not working. Let's just switch it up. Let's just try something different. Let's try a different approach, a different perspective. Sometimes that's really the answer. Yeah, the, yeah, 100%. Flexibility and being open-minded and trying things and not being stuck in ideology is just, just the way to go, no matter no matter what it is. But definitely when it comes to animals, 100%. Absolutely. So let's. Um, in, so if you take this medicine of wonder and the, the treatment cannabis of emotional dysregulation in the body. How would you compare that to the currently traditional approach of the veterinary behaviorist prescribing Prozac after meeting the dog for 30 minutes in his office and then we keep the dog on that drug forever? That, that is a very common practice. And obviously what you're, what you're discussing in Medicine of Wonder is a much better approach that obviously has a much better chance of making that animal a better, a better being. 
while the other one doesn't seem to really work in my experience. I've never really met anybody who was super happy with that and their dog came back. Oh, my dog's great now. <laughs> I've never, I've yeah. never seen that. Yeah. So how, how do you, how do we get from this to that? How do we make that transition? What, how do you see, I know you can't solve that problem for all of us either, but how do you see that happening um, to become more, more the standard versus the exception? I think that us understanding as an industry what is happening at the endocannabinoid system level offers so much power. Uh, knowing that there is an entirely other system that we can be working on for some of this behavior modulation, that it's not just a Prozac answer, that there are literally hundreds of molecules made by the cannabis plant, as well as other plants, but cannabis for this conversation, that really target exactly what we're looking at, the mechanism that the body already has to be calm. It, it's it that piece of knowledge just isn't in most veterinarians' minds because we didn't know about the system until the 1980s. And just understanding that that system is there opens up so much to the clinician's mind of what is possible. I love that you pointed out the fact that many of these animals stay on a long-term uh, Prozac, something like that. And we really don't have any evidence that that's helpful. You know, really we use those medicines more for a short term. Let's see if this makes a change. Let's put some training in place. But once you're into that long-term chronic dosing, I just, I just don't think you're going to see extra help. And if we haven't taught the body how to regulate itself, there's going to be something in the animal's life that continues to teach it to go more anxious, to grow into that anxiety. Um, they're on their normal dose of Prozac and something bad happens, something traumatic, the, a disaster, and they go through an evacuation. Well, you have that emotional scarring on top of the current treatment. It's not going to get better unless something else changes. So essentially, we're backing ourselves into a corner of trying a medication that really may not be targeting what's actually wrong. And then importantly, not teaching resiliency as a true cure. So I feel like you'll really enjoy that from a trainer perspective. Who cares what the medicine is? What is the body able to do? How does the medicine actually allow the body to develop its own resilience, its own ability to assess a situation and then take a step, take an action and then decide, okay, I feel good. I'm good. We can keep going. It's that resiliency piece that I think we're really trying to teach our animals who have any type of behavior condition. And in order to do that, it has to be individualized. It's not going to be a one size fits all. And I think I'll go back to my timing piece. You have to take time with it. You have to actually have that relationship with the family unit and the patient just as much as we do in the human sector. It just, it, for my, for my practice, it definitely doesn't work on a fast time scale understanding what's happening in that household, in the human's lives, and really taking time to listen to that patient in every session. That's what differentiates medicine and wonder. And I think that's really where just as an industry, we need to go of that slow down, take your time, you take a breath and probably the animal's going to be okay. Yeah. This, this, actually, I just saw this two days ago. There was a video update on a dog that has been, um, uh, was boy the, the most nervous, neurotic animal I have seen. Mm. Um, and this was an update and that was a completely different animal. So I, I, I'm gonna send you those links. I think you're gonna enjoy this. So this was, uh, not sure if you know Ivan Balabanov, but he, he pulled a dog from a shelter. He rescued a dog, a black Malnoir. Her name is Tina and she was a nervous wreck. 
And he mm -hmm. tried to work with a couple of uh, behaviorists and they wanted to do drugs and it, it didn't go anywhere. Ultimately didn't do any of that. And he just embarked on the training journey because he wanted to prove a point of what can be done with training. And it's all play-based. It's kind of like along the lines of what we've been talking. I don't know if he used cannabis. I know he generally probably does. In this particular case, he didn't mention anything. So I don't know if he was involved in this process. But it took six months and that's when we're kind of like duration. Um, yeah. So I'm not sending you two videos. I'm sending you the first one. I'll send you the last one. And that's really all you have to see and understand this was just done with training. It was just done with play-based training and taking your time and being yeah. patient and working at the animal's pace and just giving clarity and giving direction and just showing this dog your life is not in danger and you don't have to be doing this way and just giving them some calmness. And mm. it's a night and day from like this neurotic animal that could not stop chasing shadows and not just sit still for a second. This dog was now chilling out at his feet while it was on my computer and just walking around the house like a normal dog. Like it's always been wow. this way. It's a complete a transformation like you don't see very often. And obviously as a top level trainer, he's, Ivan is very well known. But this is not what most people are capable of doing training wise, but it's an example of what's doable when you take the time and when you have the skills and knowledge and are willing to put the effort into it. Um, it doesn't and, have you know, to one be thing that stuff. I'll sometimes ask my clients when we're working on a really tough behavior case, or maybe we're at the beginning of a case and we're talking about goals and expectations and what we, what we expect to see and what we want to see in the timeline. One of the things I think is important for the human family to think about, which can be very hard, is, is the household safe? Are you as a human feeling that same level of settledness that you want your animal to feel? So if we look at the family unit and the human can't look at me and say, yeah, I feel like we have a great schedule that we're just like loving life and I want my dog to enjoy that same thing me if they can say that yes let's tackle that absolutely but if they come to me and say you know I don't really feel safe in my own skin you know I'm really struggling with some, some things and yes we're going to work with the animal but we're also going to take care of the human at the same time what do, what do you need let's make sure that you have the support from a mental health from a physical health from a family health perspective because if we can't um say to our animals like I would like you to feel the same way that I do and look I feel great let's match and we're not being honest about what that emotional reflection of us is into the animal. Sometimes I think we're missing the root of the problem. And that is really hard for a lot of humans to think about, especially if they're not coming to terms with their own behavioral health, their own anxiety levels, just stress of what life is around them. So it can definitely be hard and a little bit of a looking in the mirror and kind of not wanting to see what's there. But it is a question that I ask a lot this thing that you want your animal to feel, the safety, this rest, this calm, you want them to be peaceful. Do you feel like that? Like, do, is that something that you know what it looks like? And if not, then let's work on this from a, a family unit perspective. So, so I'll, I'll just say that that's definitely something I yeah. ask, but it's not always easy to hear. So you want people to be honest with themselves? Yes, I definitely do. That's a big goal. <laughs> 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 but that, that seems to be a, a, a very ambitious. No, I, I 100% agree with that is necessary. I mean, it, obviously you can't have a, a dog will not um, be able to come to a calm place if the person he's with is a nervous wreck himself or herself. 100% agree. But it's also, I don't know how much um, people are willing or able to really delve into that because it's usually a lot of people have trauma themselves and dealing with Absolutely. that to be tricky. So that is, there's so much mental health is something I've 
personally, I never had to struggle with, luckily. But um, I, I'm, I'm close with someone who has some struggles there. And it's, it's been eye-opening for me to learn more about the challenges that go with that and what can and cannot be done and what's realistic and what isn't and what the research is and what, what the journey looks like. So it's been very educational for me myself to support someone. Yeah. And absolutely. Yeah, so it's uh, it's it's tough, but it's yeah, it's needed 100 um, percent. Well, it's also something that has a lot of hope on the horizon as yeah, well, because yes. I agree that it's a tough, a tough thing to think about as a human. If you're not feeling safe, but I want my animal to feel safe. Well, let's let's work on the household as a, as a whole. I I am so encouraged by what the human research is revealing in the use of psychedelic medicines. So, again, that's not medicine of wonder. That's very human based practice. But the research is spectacular. And as yeah, I mentioned earlier, the veterinary industry, so my colleagues, we are as equally um, fighting against suicide rates as my veteran community. So as a veteran, the numbers of suicides are about 22 veterans kill themselves a day. It's a pretty, it's a pretty high number. Those suicide rates are really, really high. The numbers on the veterinary side are really high as well. It's veterinarians have the highest suicide rate of any postgraduate profession. So just from a community perspective, I'm really excited about what the possibility of psychedelic medicine means for our human practitioners. And actually this September, we're hoping, we're actually currently fundraising for the ability to hold a community psilocybin ceremony. So again, psilocybin is not decriminalized in Colorado, specifically for professional grief in veterinarians. So at a treatment for professional grief and to see if that really does offer some hope to some people who are really, really struggling with some of those mental health issues. Yeah, I, I think many people are not aware that um, veterinarians have a very high suicide rate. Um, and I mean, what veterinarians have to deal with, a lot of, a lot of animals come in and will have to be euthanized. And that is is gut-wrenching when it's your pet and you do it, but if you constantly have to do this and veterinarians with busy practices have a lot of those cases because a lot of customers, that is just a lot to take. So it's, um, and I don't think most people are aware how much of a toll it takes on their veterinarians because the, when you're there and you're that person, and I've, I have an article on my website where I talked about my own experiences with the end of life of dogs. I wrote it, I wrote it after my, my two dogs we talked about passed away and I had recovered a half a year later or so. I wrote about every experiences I ever had. I was present 12 times, not mm. with my own dogs, or with other people's dogs and clients' dogs and rescue dogs that I cared about. So I've been there a lot and I've seen a lot of things. And every single time the veterinarians who've done it, they're doing, I mean, a marvelous job of trying to make this as painless as possible and trying to be comforting, but they're not, they're not um, social workers. Right? They're, they're doing their best and the, the toll it must take on them to be that person in that room all the time, I can't even imagine. I wouldn't want to do it. So, and, and that's what most people don't see. They see it once with their pet or twice. Um, I've yeah. seen it a lot and it must take a toll. I asked one of my vets once how she deals with it. And she said, oh, I just focus on the good times and the, the pets were helping mm -hmm. and the pets were saving. And, but you could see in that answer also, she also, it's, it was rough on her too. And it's, yeah. yeah, it's, it's a rough thing. It's just, it's necessary obviously, but it's, it takes a toll to do work that is very important, but also very take uh, challenging in this way. And, it, and importantly has to be honored. You know, that's the sort of underlying definition of professional grief. Not that 
a bad thing happened or a hard thing happened, you will find that from the veteran side or the healer side, seeing something hard is not the problem because you have that impulse to, okay, I'm going to go make it better. <laughs> like I'm in it, bring it on. I'm ready to help. It's not the, but the inability to help, right? The inability to take action or not being allowed the time to honor the life that has passed to just mourn with the family. And so really that busy schedule, that really, really packed um, timeline seems to be the biggest harm. It's not actually seeing the tough thing. And there's a lot of information about what professional grief is in that by honoring what was hard, you actually get stronger and more resilient. So I'll just say from my personal perspective, my, my personal experiences in this profession, I, I love euthanasias, now, not the financially motivated ones or the fetal care, like, but it is such an honor to help a life transition either from into life. So when you help an animal give birth or out of life, but it needs time and it needs care and it needs, it means being there fully with that family and letting them take the time that they need. And it's such a beautiful space to hold and create space in and to do that palliative care. And um, on the human side, there's a death doula. So someone who really can help you with that um, death process and all that goes along with that. So I'll just say that, you know, I, I love grief. I think it is such a beautiful emotion, but it's a powerful one and can't be stuffed down and you're not going to stuff it in between a surgery and your lunch break and then going to pick up your kid. It is not something that can just be, oh, well, you know, that animal just died but it is something that can be beautifully honored and treasured. And that that's, that's what makes it not a harmful thing to really be able to give that act of service, but then also take care of yourself later. So everyone always for that story, but I am honored every time that I can help an animal transition and the family deal with the grief afterwards, but it requires a lot of, a lot of energy it requires a lot of presence. And if you can do that, I mean, that's probably why you're okay would be my guess that's uh, i'm not sure every vet can do that that way but if you can it sounds like that is it's it's a it's a good way of handling it and uh looking looking at it from that perspective and versus just yeah. uh, the end of it oh a good perspective i never thought of it that way but i don't know anybody has ever described it to me this way either you you'd be the first one to actually talk about it in this in this in this way you just did um something we're thinking about well, I'll say that I've been really blessed in my career and that I have had a lot of advocacy for myself in being able to say, I'm not going to do that euthanasia, the one that I don't agree with. I'm not going to position myself to be in a situation where I have to make an ethical call or have um, moral injury is the term for that. So seeing or participating in something that you don't agree with. Professional grief is different. Professional grief says, man, that was really tough. But family, I am here with you. Like, let's grieve together. Let's celebrate as the opposite side of mourning. Mourning is the memory of what was good and beautiful and what you're going to miss. But it also has that celebration of, man, we had that, but it's gone. But I loved it while I was here. You know, that's professional grief. And that's that's part of the thing that I love being able to carry when you can also take care of it afterwards, when you can decompress, when you can let go and kind of integrate yourself, but having to do it on a clockwork basis, that's not, that's where it's not okay. When it's just one after the other, like that, that will really tear at your soul or it, it, it would for mine. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for sharing that. So definitely a good, good perspective that I want to think about some more. Um, couple more questions before we, before we get to the yeah, end of it. Absolutely. Um, so one question I, I'm, I have to ask you, I've been asked to ask you this question. I don't know if there's, yeah. uh, so is there a, um, are there specific strains that you've seen that help with the emotional dysregulation more than others, like Indica or Sativa or what, what, what is the, um, the most common one used that you have um, seen benefits with? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a little bit of background on that to make my answer feel more clear. The, the human cannabis industry had a lot of colloquial language before we had the testing to know what the molecules actually were. So you had words like indica and sativa for strains become really, really prominent as humans were using different strains and saying, it makes me feel this way. And so indica tends to describe the lower, calm, go to sleep, kind of rest. And then sativas tend to describe the more creative or uplifting, or I want to go hang out with my friends. So again, very human perspectives, but that's where those two words come from, the indica and sativa sides when talking about the strain. Now at the molecular level, now that we can actually test what these strains have in them, we see particular mixes of molecules that give the effects to the physiology. So that's how I'm actually going to answer your question. Yes, absolutely. There are certain strains or more specifically particular groupings of molecular molecules in certain ratios and combinations that are going to have a physiologic effect, which would be better or worse for an anxiety. For example, um, CBDA is a really amazing anti-inflammatory. So this is really, really amazing for osteoarthritis, inflammation of any kind, um, and it's a, a really powerful molecule, but it's not one of my favorites in anxiety, unless that anxiety is related to pain. So if the animal's painful and you use CBDA, which is um, the precursor to CBD, the behavior is going to get better because the animal is no longer painful. But if you have an animal who has a primary behavior issue, so a primary anxiety or something that is not rooted in pain and you give the animal a lot of CBDA, it's, in my experience, not going to go as well. That's not the right mix for what their physiology is asking for. So when you ask what's the right strain, we do know some of those molecules. Now in veterinary medicine, we tend to work off the lab reports and the products themselves. So it's not really strain specific for us. Usually you hear the strain part for a human who's going to smoke it. So they drive the bud, they're actually going to smoke the strain themselves, like it itself. And that's how humans use it a lot. On the animal side, we're usually working with tinctures. So a liquid form of cannabis, looking at the lab report that tells me which molecules are in this, and then I'll give it to the animal based on the molecules that I'm looking for. Just to list a few, some of my favorite molecules in anxiety are CBD, definitely cannabidiol, CBG, cannabigerol is one of a, a very, very recent favorite. I love working with this molecule. Beta-caryophyllin is a terpenoid that has some really great activity in some of these behavior cases. Limonene is, so anything that has citrus is a terpenoid that kind of is uplifting. You kind of smell that citrus smell. Um, uh, linalool is in lavender. So that might be for ones that we want to calm the animal down a little bit. So that's kind of your half answer. Yes, there are definitely strains that are better or worse for anxiety. In animals, we tend to see the lab report first and then look, work from the molecule side, but there are definitely mixes of molecules that work better for behavior cases. Okay. So would be uh, the best approach to 
have the blood drawn of the animal and get a full workup and then look at which um, CBD molecules would be the most appropriate for the dog in front of you? You know, I would start with a CBD dominant product. So maybe a 50 to one. So lots of CBD in there to a little bit of THC or even 25 to one, as we mentioned before, and start journaling even more than the molecules themselves, journaling how the animal responds to it is going to tell you the most information. So if as a trainer, you start the animal on a good quality CBD dominant product and have your owner journal, and then you send them to me after about two weeks or so, I'm going to look at the journal and be my nerd self and say, aha, so I see that we're having a lot of pain in the evening. Let's add in some CBG there to make sure they can sleep a little bit better. So then it allows me to really tweak it from that perspective. Okay. So we're doing mostly an observation. We're not doing it basically on, on uh, okay, testing. Okay. Makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. So where, where do you see the industry progressing in terms of availability, legalization, adaptation in, uh, in regular vet practices for cannabis. And I mean, also if, if you can speak to it, to the, um, the psychedelics to some degree, that may be too early to make a prediction on that. But where do you see the journey of cannabis progressing in the next five to 10 years? I think we're gonna see some sweeping policy changes. There are enough states working on policy changes that truly allow veterinarians to write a recommendation card. So take this card to the dispensary and get your animals cannabis, right? That that type of policy is coming really quickly. And your state probably will be among the first. So congratulations. We'll see when that comes up. Finally. Um, veterinary cannabis <laughs> Society. Do you know them, that, that group, BCS? No, uh, they are based out of California. They're a national organization, but they are working really hard on that advocacy policy side. And I think they're doing an amazing job of helping states write some policy letters, helping states write some policies that get voted in. So I, I think in five years, we're going to see a very different landscape in terms of how veterinarians can be involved. Now, I'll just say that that doesn't mean that it's a going to be an easy answer. There's a lot to learn about the ECS and all the products are different and all the molecule profiles are different. So it requires from the veterinarians, from all of our veterinary industry technicians and trainers and everyone that we're not just taking the easy way out. Oh, this product, I recognize the brand. I think they've done some testing. Great. Use that. We really need to understand that this is an individualized medicine. So look at the lab test, look at the COA, journal how the animal responds and be willing to change the product. It's not a pharmaceutical that you pop a pill and you know exactly what's in it. This is how is the animal's body going to respond to this change that we made. So I think in five years, we're going to see very different policies, but probably still see some struggle with how medical professionals know how to implement it into their practice, just because it is sometimes it can feel overwhelming because there's a lot of information out there. Yeah. And that's with anything. I mean, there's so many studies, there's so many things all the time. And if you're a vet, you're not just dealing with dogs, right? You're dealing with, I don't know how many Absolutely. different species. And that's so many of the things that you have to constantly stay on top of. It's, I understand that vets can, can't be on top of everything. And, um, yeah. But that's why we use all of our colleagues. You know, it's not just a veterinarian um, led issue anymore. It's involving the pet parent. It's involving every part of the care team. And cannabis is such a nice medicine to use that for. It is such an easy modality to get everyone on board. But again, as we said in the beginning, it takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of humbleness to make sure that you're working well with everyone around you. Yeah.
Well, there was a lot. Talked about a lot of things. Um, is there anything else you want to add? Because I don't think uh, I have any questions left at this point. I think we covered everything I wanted to go over. Um, anything else you want to add? How people can find you, how they can get started? Anything we missed from your perspective? Uh, medicineofwonder.org is my uh, new protocol page. I only take 15 patients at a time because I work pretty closely with those pet parents. Like we text back and forth every day. So it's a very uh, individualized program. But veterinarycannabis.org has some open slots if anyone's interested in more help on the cannabis side. Veterinary Psy, P-S-Y, <laughs> is the psychedelic page. They can find us there. And, you know, I think I'll just say that I would love everyone to know how grateful I am to be alive at this time in the world, to be a practicing veterinary professional in the U.S., in Colorado. I think we are going to see a different world in five years because of what psychedelic medicine is bringing. And I just, I feel incredibly grateful to be involved in it. So my last closing words to your audience would be, be excited for the change that we're about to see. And whatever you think the world needs, be, let's do it. Let's make it happen. Um, it's not a time to be discouraged or depressed. It's a time to really look for the future and see what we want to bring into the world and actually make it happen. All right. Wonderful words to end on. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time. Very much appreciate you taking the time out to talk to me about this. And uh, everybody, please reach out on the websites of medicineofwonder.org and veterinarycannabis.org and get in on that journey in helping your dog if you have a need for it. These are some wonderful benefits you should explore. See you next time. Bye.